Welcome to the Data Binge Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two, one, deploy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode today. I hope you are well and your families are safe and healthy and everything is going as well as it can be right now for you and the loved ones that you have. I'm really excited about today's discussion. This is going to be a little bit of a solo discussion on some things that are extremely important to me that I think that I should share with the audience. So it's just going to be me and you today thinking about these ideas that I'm going to go ahead and put on your plate. And what I want to share is a culmination of everything that I've learned in my career thus far here at Microsoft and what has been taught to me and learned from just an incredible, amazing tribe of mentors that continues to evolve, that continue to invest in my learning and capturing those learnings and disseminating to this audience is really giving me energy right now. So I'd like to get started. A quick update for you. On November 12th at 1230 p.m. PST, the Simply Tech Live program, co-hosted by myself and Ali Mazahari, will be hosting a discussion on LinkedIn Live with Gina Lofton, Chief Technology Officer of Microsoft US. Gina will be joining to discuss ideas around the new culture of work, building trust internally and externally, as well as leading with empathy and the importance of diversity and inclusion all principles aimed at helping to close the digital divide across groups, communities, and organizations. Gina is a well-known leader in the Microsoft community, and you can find more details around how to join the live event to be a part of the discussion at linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Simply Tech Live. And now for today's episode. These specific learnings, these 10 learnings, apply to my career specifically and my experiences specifically, but I've tried to make them holistic enough so that you can get value out of them, whether you are a technologist or a business leader or a knowledge worker, or just someone who's really trying to improve themselves in career or improve themselves in their personal lives. And I'm really hoping that you can take some of these values, you can add to them, you can share any differences you may have or any things that you may have learned and share them with me, share them with our audience, and we can co-develop together. So here we are. Over the past three years and several months, here are my top 10 learnings as of today, October 19th, 2020. Number one, what makes you fearful is a worthy pursuit. I can't even talk enough about how much fear that I personally have, and I think a lot of us have a lot of fear. Everything from presenting thoughts to getting on calls to winning an argument, having a political discussion, a discussion about sports, talking, having a confrontation with your mechanic, having a confrontation with your wife or loved ones. There's so many different opportunities each and every single day that culminates out of what you fear. It's ego, what you think of yourself, self-esteem, all these different activities. I mean, I'm, I'm fearful right now, just recording this by myself in my studio, but there's no one here. There's no one listening other than this digital recorder. And I'm feeling fear. So this idea of being consumed with one's own thoughts of failure, I came up with this slogan. What makes you fearful is a worthy pursuit. I really believe that if something is giving you fear, then it is something that you should 
really, really compound and focus on. One of the things that Tony Robbins says, he says, let fear be a counselor and not a jailer. You know, so how can that element of fear just really empower you? I had a mentor I, I asked some questions of. He's an executive at Microsoft and he's just a great human being, just a really thoughtful person. And I asked him, how have you gotten here so quickly on your own merit, of, of course, with, with help from his family and his mentors and his networks, but how did you get here? How do you manage fear in that context. And he told me that one of the things that he does in terms of self-managing fear is he says this one statement to him himself, this one thing, this one sentence, and it gives him an idea. And it's, he says this exact thing to himself. I'm going to share with you guys. The cave you fear to enter holds the most treasure I seek. And he says this to himself repeatedly. And I think that was a really good quote. You know, the cave you fear to enter holds the most treasure I seek. You know, there's multiple different caves you can enter. Maybe you shouldn't enter each and every cave if you're really looking into the anecdote here, the analogy here, and the most treasure. Not some treasure, but the most treasure. I thought that was just really, really interesting. I've come to the realization that, again, if I'm trying to overcome something and I'm feeling some kind of fear, just the understanding of the basic premise that if I'm scared, if I'm experiencing this, then I know that I'm on the right track. And that, I have to underline that when I'm experiencing fear, I know that I'm on the right track and that's so powerful. So think to yourself, the next time you are doing something, if you're listening to this and you're going through something in your life that you're feeling some kind of fear and something's frightening you, why are you feeling that? And if you didn't move forward, what other feelings would you get? Would you experience regret? Because that's another fear. I'm very fearful of regret. Think to yourself would come out of every single activity and why you're feeling the way that you do. One item, one action that has really worked for me in this entire fear management idea focus area is if you're doing something audacious, and it can even be small things like talking to your accountant or talking to your kids or having a confrontation with someone at work to write down all the things that you are going to fail at that day in your journal or someplace that you can catalog these things, writing all these different things down I'm going to fail at having this discussion about my taxes. I'm going to fail at this presentation. I'm going to fail at this podcast. I'm going to be too scared to record this thing solo. I'm not going to post this thing on LinkedIn. I'm not going to suggest this idea to my boss's boss. I'm not going to let my wife know that our relationship is not going the way that I think it could go. All these different things, you write them down. And at the end of the day, you review those items. The next day you review those items and you will be so surprised in how many of those things never even happened. It's almost a joke. I've been doing this for a couple months now, only on days I'm just really fearful about certain things. And it really does work. And over time, you start to realize, and there's a pattern where the things that you fear just are not coming true. So those are some things I think that are just really important. It's a way of kind of building up a a set of patterns based on historic data. You can look at the data that you're building in your journals and you can see over time there's nothing to fear. And then at some point now, when I write these things down in the morning, I start giggling in the middle of writing these things down. Like, there's no way I'm going to fail at this presentation. This is what I've never failed at one all year. And I, I write this down in my journal every single time I have a presentation. So you just start to make that mental mapping of things that are really not going to happen, that aren't really true. And it's a big way of overcoming fear. Number two, lead with empathy. So I believe it was last year at the Digital Transformation Academy, and I believe I've shared this in past episodes, but Microsoft had this conference 
and they invite folks to these different conferences. And this one particular person that was invited, Brian Stevenson, he's a civil rights lawyer and author of the book, Turned Movie Just Mercy. And Microsoft's US president of the sales organization, Kate Johnson, brought him on. And everyone, this, we were actually in person at this conference, and everyone listened to her interview him on some of his insights around creating empathic action. One of the things he quoted was to create a better world, we have to find a better way to get closer to people. That's so interesting. Leading with empathy. Again, to quote him again, to create a better world, we have to find a better way to get closer to people. And that quote really resonated with me. To create a better world, we have to find a better way to get closer to people. And if you haven't noticed in the past couple episodes, past couple dozen episodes, I've been really focused on this idea of diversity and inclusion. And I've been trying to do that on my own, trying to get closer to these different populations, to get closer to these different lines of thought. Because as we get closer, we build more empathy. And I think that's something that we all need to do, not only in our personal lives, but in our professional lives as well. Brian characterized how to stimulate empathic action and leadership in the following four pillars, super important pillars. Narrative, changing the narrative to capture the reality of how things really are. What stories are being told that are negatively impacting the reality of what's really going on that's preventing you from getting closer? Proximity, getting closer to the problem. Getting closer to the problem will help us understand the problem more clearly. Hope, having positive energy and hope that things can change. You know, some things I'm extremely, extremely concerned with are things that I want to get closer to and hopefully see change or help change is climate change. You know, I'm very hopeful about the world doing something about climate change. I'm very hopeful that big organizations are going to hire more Black and Hispanic and veterans and folks from populations that are underserved. I have a lot of hope that our mindsets are going to change irregardless of upcoming elections or irregardless of things that are happening on a day-to-day basis that we see on the news. Having that hope and that positive energy is so important. Then action. In the last six, seven months, we've heard a lot of things coming out of the Black community, for example. We've heard a lot of things coming out of the allyship community, for example, trying to either get action or putting forth the ideas that there's not enough action. How can we get more action? Being happy with the action that we're taking on or not being happy with it. But irregardless, having goals, no matter the size, it can be incremental goals. And just taking strides and leaps toward things that are uncomfortable and inconvenient. Those are things that I think can really help in the last stage of these four empathic action leadership principles that Brian goes through. You can learn more about Brian Stevenson as he's doing some really, really amazing work with his nonprofit, Equal Justice Initiative. It's a nonprofit that my wife and my family and I continue to support year over year. But leading with empathy is one of the biggest takeaways that I've had here in my time at Microsoft. It's been the best gift that has been given to me. And I wanted to share that with you all. Establishing a routine. Number three. So establishing routine I read this book, Miracle Morning Millionaire, What the Wealthy Do Before Breakfast. And it's just an amazing read. I'll put a link to it in the show notes of this discussion. What is your routine? Do you have a routine? Some people don't believe in a routine. I definitely believe in a routine because no matter how crappy your day is going, you can focus and you can lean in on a routine. It's a model. It's a mental model. It's a physical model. It's something that you can follow if you're tired, if the kids woke up last night too early and you didn't get any sleep, if you're scared of something, if you got 
you know, a pipe burst in one of the walls or underneath the foundation of your house. If you have a routine, you can be prepared to move through whatever current problem or challenge you're going through. And let me just go through my routine just so I think it's a strong routine. I've focused on it a lot and I'm hoping that it brings ideas around successful routines that other folks can follow. I typically follow this six times a week, maybe five times a week, definitely during the weekdays, waking up early, waking up at 4.30 in the morning. Lately, it's been 4.40, trying to get that extra 10 minutes because I read pretty late now, up until around 9.15, typically nine o'clock. But as soon as I wake up, you doing some kind of meditation, for instance, the, the waking up app is what I use by Sam Harris. I do some journaling. I think journaling as part of the morning routine is critical in terms of having a successful day. It really helps me capture a successful day. Within my journal, I notate my sleep cycle, which is an iOS application you can download. Use machine learning to establish a baseline of what you sound like when you're breathing and snoring, et cetera. So it, it trains a model specifically for you. And then it uses that particular model to understand when you're hitting your REM sleep or when you're not sleeping. And it kind of catalogs and rates and compares you and it, there's some gamification. So, so it's a really nice way to understand how you're sleeping, what's impacting your sleeping, alcohol, romance, negative day, was it raining, all these different things that could impact your sleep. So in the morning in that journal, I kind of notate what kind of sleep I had. So this has kind of helped me understand my day. If I'm having a rough day, well, there you go. There's some data behind that. I write down a descriptor word and it has to be positive. The other day I wrote down my first non-positive word because I was ready to start my day with a non-positive word. I think I wrote, you know, excitement and anxiety as the two descriptor words, actually. That really helps me kind of check in with myself to see where I'm at. You know, I write down three things I'm grateful for. So you hear a lot about gratitude in these types of routines. Typically, over time, the things I'm grateful for are, I got this wonderful guest on my podcast, or I went to the park with my kids and it was just a wonderful day at the park, or I went to the gym with my wife while my mom was watching the kids. And that was just a really amazing moment for me and me and her connected. So I have these three things I'm grateful for. And every single time it brings a smile to my face. And then I write, you know, how am I better today than I was the day before? Am I a harder worker? Am I more efficient with my time? Am I more present? Am I leaving my phone upstairs while I'm playing with the kids? So I'm constantly thinking, how am I better today? Because it's nice to get that incremental win. Again, I write the things I feel I'll utterly, completely fail at, which is a, a way of overcoming fear. I write down three critical objectives I must accomplish to have a successful day. This is critical to goal aggregation. Every single day I have to, and they're not easy tasks, they're hard tasks or tasks I don't want to do. What are those three critical objective tasks I don't want to do that are going to lead to a successful day? And then I give myself some thoughts and this could be anything I'm feeling and what I'm scared of, what I'm proud of, you know, underlining wins, underlining losses, things I'm looking forward to, things I'm proud of myself and my family for. And during this time from about 4.40 in the morning, starting at the meditation all the way till about 6.30 when the kids get up, that is my time to focus on myself and establish whatever I need to do. Typically, I don't work on any work per se, any employer work. During this time, it's all my own stuff, or it could be things I need to do to free up more time in the day to do things that are more valuable to me. It's so important to establish routine. Be clear about your values, number four. Be clear about your values and do your best to align your work with your values. If someone were to ask you, what are your values? What kind of values do you have? Do you feel like you can align? Do you feel like you can talk about your values? One of my coaches talked me through this idea, and I've, you've probably heard this before in the podcast, but 
Happiness doesn't exist. All that exists is the pursuit of one's own values. And this has been so extremely important for me in terms of how I spend my time, what I spend my time on and how I manage my calendar. If I get someone that randomly, you know, pings me on Teams or on LinkedIn or texts me or calls me, I ask myself, is this going to bring me closer? If I take this call or take this meeting or chat with this person, is this going to bring me closer to my values? And that's a really interesting thing to index on and to do some analysis on. And I'll share how you can assess your values. It's something called a values deck that my coach gave me. It's basically all these different values. I mean, probably a hundred values. And you have these different subcategories from ranging from most important, from not important in the middle, somewhat important. And I'm just going to share my values with you as part of this exercise. This has helped me get even closer to the values. So for instance, most important, my values were self-development, health, fun, friendship, knowledge, integrity. So when I engage on a project, I can come, and this is written in the back of my journal so I could look at every single thing I look at, I ask myself, is this going to increase my knowledge? Is this going to help me have better friendships? Is this going to bolster my integrity? Am I going to have fun doing this? Is this going to impact my health in any way negative? And am I going to be a better person if I engage on this thing? It helps me make decisions, things that are not important for me at all. And again, this is my own personal values just to share how I kind of make these different kinds of decisions and how it helps me, but things are not important. God's will, tradition, stability, popularity, authority, and power. Typically, I associate all of those things with ego and I associate all of those things with negativity to some degree. So it helps me stay towards the positive end of the spectrum of what's most important for my personal values. And everyone's is different. That's just, this is just an example. I have yet to do this exercise with my wife. I would love to see what our joint values look like. So I think that's the next thing on our radar for that. Number five, don't start your day until you finish it. One of my mentors asked me, Derek, how are you over-provisioned? You have a lot going on. Do you ever think about how you're over-provisioned? Are there any opportunities to optimize and align your day to your goals? And that really coincided with what Jim Rohn essentially talks about. And he's a motivational speaker. You can find him on YouTube. Don't start your day until you finish it. Don't start your week until you finish it. Don't start your month until you finish it. Don't start your year until you finish it. What he means by that is plan out your day before you start your day. Have that routine. Look at your calendar. Look at the meetings you have going on. Look at that next day. Look at that week. Look at that month. Look at that year. Do you start your day before you finish it? Ever since I started doing this, my life has been so much more efficient because I have time to go through my calendar of that specific day or that week or that month and just eradicate things that don't align to my values. So every day after journaling, the actual activity looks like me going through my routine, looking through my calendar, managing my meetings, declining meetings, accepting, moving, etc. Takes a lot of pressure off me before I start the day. It really, really works. And then it helps you do something else. It helps you optimize your time. And that's something I've really been focusing on. One of my colleagues has really taught me a lot of tricks and tips and mindsets around how to do this. He's a perfectionist when it comes to managing his own time. And here's just a couple of things I've learned from him and just from doing this on my own because I really have cut a lot of my time. I try to cut 25% of all incoming meetings. And I had some stats where I was able to free up I think it was between 8 and 15% of my time just based upon not starting my day until I finish it, just really planning that out. 
if a meeting doesn't have an agenda, I don't accept it unless there's a customer or a manager on or I, there's absolute clarity on what the meeting is. And if you're setting a meeting, don't set a meeting without an agenda. Peter Drucker, the author of The Effective Executive, amazing book. And he talks about you need to take more time planning the meeting than the time the actual meeting really needs. So you need to plan the meeting. You need to make sure that the folks that are getting that time, that are accepting that meeting, understand what the outcomes of that meeting are going to be. They understand the objective. They understand that it's not going to be a waste of time. It goes inversely. If I feel like no one's respecting my time and not putting that effort into that meeting, then I'm just simply not going to go to it. And it's going to free up so much more of your time. And odds are you didn't need to be on that meeting. When putting together a meeting, it's very easy to put together an agenda. Every single meeting should have an agenda. Some thoughts should go into this meeting. You want to do introductions, some kind of attention getter. This is your hypothesis. This is your objective. Like, what are you trying to do in this meeting? There should be some kind of a body. It's just like writing a document or an essay. There should be some kind of a body. Like, what are you trying to do in the body of that meeting together? You have that objective. Like, then what? What's your evidence? Like, what are some things you're going to talk about? And then finally, the conclusion is it next step? Is it recommendations? Is it figuring out a time that you can meet for the next meeting? Having that construct when you construct your meetings, I think, is extremely valuable. Challenge that every meeting be cut in half by 50%. What if you said every single meeting, hey, guys, I got to run. I got to run in 30 minutes. Even if you don't have to run in 30 minutes, it sets the bar. It gives people the idea. It gives people the truth of how much you value your time, which you do. And it allows you to cut the meeting in half. It allows people to get serious. Then you all of a sudden, you feel the momentum of the meeting moving. You feel things going faster. Okay, Derek, since you only have 30 minutes, And then someone else might chime in, hey, I got to jump in 30 minutes. So then the meeting that was an hour just turns into 30 minutes. You just gained 50% of your time back for that specific meeting. That's a huge win. So how can you challenge every single meeting to be cut by 50%? Even if that's a 15-minute meeting, I love 15-minute meetings. Can you cut that 15-minute meeting by 50%? Can it be a seven and a half minute meeting? Still working on that. I'll let you know how that goes. But this is a really great way to save time. Additionally, you have to track your time if you want to manage your time. And and I did this exercise in four to six weeks. It was stimulated by one of my mentors that told me, hey, you're over-provisioned. By doing all these different exercises, I was able to increase my customer-facing calls. I got the intelligence from my analytics, which is an analytics-based feature on Office 365. But cutting my meetings in half, declined 25% of my meetings. There was no agenda. I'm not going. Really looking at what that meeting is going to do for me is going to align my values I was able to increase my customer-facing calls for 5%. If I can increase customer-facing calls, I can do my job better. I can spend more time with the customer. I can learn. I can get better. I did see a 7% decrease in focus time, which wasn't good because I want to increase my focus time. But the moral of the story is I was able to improve collaboration time with customers that would yield the most impact for Microsoft and our customer organizations. I was able to spend more time with my top three customers in email and collaboration hours And I was able to increase partner meetings and decrease internal meetings. And this is all data-driven stuff. So there is a way to manage your time, but you cannot manage your time if you don't diagnose and track your time. You diagnose it and you track it, you manage it so that you can prescriptively get better at mapping your time against your values. One of the easiest ways to do this is in Outlook or probably any other suite, office suite, in terms of how you collate your schedule, but you can color code things. So I color code all my different ways I spend my time. I have focus time. I have partner time. I have customer time. I have personal time. I have drive time. I have focus time. I have all these different things. And I put everything in colors so I can very, very quickly look at my schedule 
And I can say, okay, this week, oh my gosh, I didn't spend any time with customers. This week, I didn't spend any time with managers. This week, I didn't spend any time, any personal time. There's zero personal time this week. I didn't do anything personally for myself. So that's your way of very quickly looking at your schedule. And you can just kind of click through your weekly progress and look at every single week and see where you need to spend more time. And that's a good gut check for what you need to be doing with your time. Okay, this week, I need to spend more time with customers. It's a forcing function, probably spend more time with my customers. And then at the end of the month, you can look at your My Analytics if you use Office 365, and you can look at that data and figure out if that data supports what you've been doing. Write a damn good email and the power of the follow-up. So email is, an, is a very funny thing. There's so many folks that everyone is just like completely over-indexed on email. I can't even describe it. It's part of our everyday lives. We're glued to our email. I don't know if any of the folks have watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, but it talks about our addiction to our phones and social and all the different things that make us change our behaviors because we're essentially addicted to our phones. But if you're going to write an email, write a damn good email. And there's a lot of power to that. And there's also a lot of power to the follow-up. And because there's so much email going on and it's been around for so long, I think folks have gotten used to just replying on your phone and just not putting effort into writing a damn good email. There's a couple things that come out of doing that. You're helping the team stay organized. So if you're writing email, you write what you covered in the discussion. And some of this is 101, but I think this is important. You're writing a quick summary. First, a hypothesis of the relationship of that email. This is kind of what we're doing. This is when we had the meeting. Here's some of the context of what we discussed. Boom. Then we go into a summary or we go into an ask. And I typically highlight the ask. Can we talk again about this XYZ subject highlighted? So folks know exactly where you're getting at. And then summary. These are the items we discuss in the call. And then bulleting those exact items. Links, bold, whatever folks need to look at. Highlighting that in the summary. Next steps and recommendations. And then putting the recommendations and next steps. If certain folks are owning certain things, you tag those folks. But having that high level, having that highlighted ask so everyone knows what the hell you're asking of them. Writing the summary and putting recommendations, it takes some time. Yeah, I'll take 15 minutes to write a damn good email. I'll take 20 minutes. And most of the time, when I do something like that, I invest my time in that, it always rewards us later. You know, six months down the line, 10 months down the line, a week down the line, whatever, when someone replies to that email, I can go back and say, oh, that's what we were discussing. Those are the next steps. It's almost a way to catalog and capture the things that came out of the meeting and that's the best way to spend your time. And everyone can sit on that information and they can make a better decision. So I think it's really important to write a good email. It's one of the things I've learned here. It's a timestamp of your current state of ideation and thought IP. It's a capture of your work in that current moment. I think that's really important. I think getting back and going back and checking emails, everyone does things differently. One of the things I have captured is I never apologize in an email. I think that is one of the worst things you could possibly do. An apology for an email is not worth anything. It's just like an apology via text. It's not worth anything unless you're doing it in person or over a virtual call where people can hear you and see you and there's empathy and they can understand. But other than that, I would never apologize in an email. It's always something like, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your waiting. Really appreciate the team giving us time to work on these different things, et cetera. Number seven, lead every human engagement with positivity and energy. Something I've learned here that, especially in this year that we're going through in 2020, there's so many negative things going on and it's really hard 
to get through the day for a lot of us. We're having issues at home. We're having issues at work. We're scared. We don't know what's going on in the market. There's elections. There's all these different things that are happening. But every single time, it's a very simple model. It's not always easy, but it's very simple. Every single time that you have any kind of human engagement, any kind of human engagement, any engagement with another human, whether it's social, text, call, in-person, whatever, what can you do to inject maximum positivity and maximum energy into that engagement? It has literally changed the context of every single relationship that I have professionally, and I'm trying to be better at it personally because bringing your true self professionally isn't always the best way to go, especially when you're getting paid to bring your best self. Your true self may not be the best way to go, but doing that with your friends and your personal life and your family, you'd be so surprised in what that can do for you. Do your best to include the smallest voice in the room, number eight. Going back to diversity inclusion, one of the things that folks ask when you think about action, what can we do, this empathic action? How can we take action behind diversity and inclusion? How can we take action behind deny leadership and be more inclusive and bringing in different thought and paying more attention to how certain populations are suffering or are not suffering? The easiest way to do that is to figure out who the smallest voice in the room represents and bring them in the discussion. It's really hard to do if you're not thinking about it. But if you think about it, that's part of your goal list for how you can be more empathic. You can lead more empathically. It's something that we can all do. And typically that voice is someone who doesn't have the loudest voice, someone that may be feeling insecure in their environment, someone who may be feeling like they don't belong and reaching out and giving someone a pathway into the conversation is super valuable. It can completely change their day. It can completely change their life. So how do you include the smallest voice in the room? Every single time I get on a call, I think about that. Who's not speaking? How can I bring attention to them? Including the smallest voice in the room could involve thinking about words or notions or environments or things you can talk about. If you know someone in the room may like a certain thing, bringing that up in the conversation, what can you do to bring the very, very best out of that small voice. It's an art. I think it's a really beautiful art if you can get it right. And if you can focus on it, you can train yourself to do that. Have a distinct and specific vision and revisit that vision often. One of the things that invigorated this ninth item was Kate Johnson, again, the US president of Microsoft. She said, when we focus, we win. And that was to the the sales organization at Microsoft. When we focus, we win. And that really hit a chord for me. I really, really believed that sentiment. In my early 20s, I was just absolutely obsessed with the sport of bodybuilding and fitness. And I I did a couple bodybuilding competitions and they were just wild and amazing and fun and detrimental to (laughs) who I was all at the same time. And having a vision was so important in a sport where it's all subjective. It's all based upon how you look, for instance, you know, how your muscular development, those types of things. So, That really taught me because of the specific rules of that particular hobby, sport, whatever you want to call it, it taught me how important it is to actually have a vision. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, one of the uh, most popular bodybuilders of all time, most winningest bodybuilders of all time, had this quote, create a vision of who you want to be and then live into that picture as if it were already true. And just kind of growing up with Arnold Schwarzenegger as being one of 
my heroes, regardless of his decisions and his personal life, was so powerful for me because it really came back to that vision. How can you envision yourself doing something? What does it look like to win? When you win, what are you going to do? When you're the winning team, what are you going to do? How are you going to act? What does that look like? How are you going to feel? And really imagining that has been so powerful. One of the best lessons I've ever learned in the importance of vision I got from another mentor, and it was the premise of this vision exercise. I'm going to share this quick vision exercise with you. And there's three separate exercises. And if my mentor is listening to this, I hope he is. He's going to recognize this. There's three specific exercises and you do them on different days. I, I like to do them, you know, three, four or five days apart. And in each exercise, the first one, it's 10 minutes, you light a candle, put on some music, whatever you want to do to get in the zone. You're going to meditate and you're going to think about what and who and the environment and all the things that come together that are going to define where you are at in your life in 12 months. Who are the people you're hanging out with? Where are you living? What conversations are you having? How are you traveling? How are you working? Where are you working? What does that working relationship look like? What are you doing for work? Who are you talking to at work? Who are your friends? Who do you text the most? What are you wearing? How is your hairstyle? Everything that could possibly go into creating a vision of what you want, of what gives you energy in 12 months is the first exercise. 10 minutes, you do that. You notate every single thing that you've taken away from that. And you can even split them up in different categories. I split mine up into personal, career, adventure, and how I'm giving back. Those are the four segments I split them up into. And they just so happen to be the four segments that Tony Robbins aligns to when he talks about goals. And you do that for 12 months, you do that for five years, and you do that for 10 years. Instead of the five-year one, you can also do that in two to three years. But doing that allows you to map your values, to your goals, to your vision. And if you have that vision and you live into that picture as if it were already true and you're going to be subconsciously driven to that vision. And that was one of the most wonderful pieces of advice I've ever gotten. And I got that here in my time at Microsoft by a boss who's no longer with Microsoft, but, and also a mentor. Really can't underline how important that's been for me. And then finally, I want to leave this lasting idea of, you know, what is your legacy? And I got this question when I was interviewing for like a big, big, big competitor of ours. I think I signed some documentation saying I can't disclose any information from the interview, so I can't say who it was. But one of the questions that came up was, if you leave Microsoft, what are you going to leave behind? What's going to be your legacy? And I was very prepared for that question. And I think part of the question for me was, you know, I really want to disrupt and change the way that Microsoft engages with its customers. I think we're engaging in a way that's not digital enough. We need to do more social and thought leadership. We need to do more podcasting. We need to really build depth and empathy and connection with our customers through information and thought leadership. And we're not doing that today. And I want to disrupt that entire cycle of engagement of how we reach out and build empathy and build communication and relationships with our customers. Something along that, the lines of that. But since I've thought about that legacy question, it's really helped me build the vision that I want to extend into the next 5, 10, 20 years of what I'm trying to do in my career and how my personal goals and personal values map into that. So it's just a really, really important question. I've been thinking a lot about that question every single day. It's a good question to ask yourself. 
And I think it's really going to empower you to have just an amazing career. So I really hope that these top 10 things I've learned here in my three years and a quarter time at Microsoft, I've really thought a lot about these different things and they've really helped me. And I wasn't able to come across these items without all of the amazing help that I've gotten from people around me. I'm continuing to learn. I'm continuing to learn not only from mentors and peers and, and people that are getting, trying to get on my calendar to ask me questions around my current career, but I'm learning from my audience. I'm learning from everyone. And, and I think it's a give and get, and we all have something to give each other. So I hope this was a good listen. Please reach out to me at Derek at the database.com. If you'd like to have a discussion or if any of these things resonated with you, and I'd love to hear about what else I can do about my experiences that can help you in yours. So thank you for your time. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.